the Bible, let's turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24 is where we'll begin. Good to see you this morning. We have a number of visitors with us. Thank you for being here. We're always glad to have you. We want you to feel welcome. If there's any way we can help you to know God better, anything we can do for you, maybe there's something particular that brought you in this morning, you have a, a problem or burden on your heart, or anything we can do to help you with that, we'd love to know about that. We'd love to help in any way we can. Please let us get to know you, but most of all, thank you for being here. We're glad that you're here this morning. I want to... Uh, Say that I appreciate your patience. I am sitting down this morning. I've been having a little bit of vertigo over the last couple of days, and I thought it would be better to not fall down while I'm preaching. So here I am sitting. Uh, if I fall off the stool, I guess you're on your own. I don't know. Uh, but uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to get through it, and there won't be any problem with that. Also want to remind the high schoolers we're having a Devo this afternoon at our house at 5 o'clock. I'll probably be sitting down there too, but we'd love for you guys to come uh, 5 o'clock this evening. I want to remind you guys about that. I told your parents, now I'm reminding you. Uh, Luke chapter 14 and verse 13. I'm sorry, Luke 24 and verse 13. Luke 24, 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And while they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? He said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to death, to be condemned to death, and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. I love this little story about the day that Jesus rose from the dead. These men who were disciples of Jesus are not yet aware of the fact that he has risen from the dead and they are walking, going somewhere else. They are sad and Jesus himself draws along next to them and begins to talk with them. And so I want you to notice particularly because it gives some insight into the mindset of some of Jesus' disciples. I want you to notice particularly how they talk about the death of Jesus. It says in verse 20, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Do you notice how the death of Jesus in their mind signals the end? We had hoped, but now because Jesus is dead, we have no hope. And they have not yet understood that Jesus has risen from the dead, that Jesus is talking with them right now. But it's interesting to me that when the disciples begin to see Jesus... And Jesus appears to them and they investigate his wounds. When Jesus is known to be risen from the dead, what happens is the view of Jesus' death begins to change. Because if Jesus is alive again, you have to ask the question, well, why did he have to die in the first place? If he had the power to rise from the dead, then why was he crucified? And so what I want to do for a few minutes this morning is I want to examine... Just what it is New Testament Christians taught about the death of Jesus as they began to look back and say, why did this happen? Just what happened on the cross? And so I just realized I got here on my stool and I don't have my clicker. John, you knew it. He was ready. He, he got up immediately. That was awesome. I want to take a fresh look at the cross, as John has just revealed for us. A fresh look at the cross where we look again at what happened on the cross in light of the resurrection, knowing 
that there was more to the story than the death. The death was not the end, so why did Jesus die? And so I want to take a look at what the New Testament Christians began to say about the death of Jesus. Let's go first to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> the first thing that we find the New Testament Christians saying about the death of Jesus is that the cross was first an act of evil. In Acts chapter 2, we have the account after spending 40 days with Jesus, seeing him ascend to heaven, receiving the Holy Spirit. Here, the apostles begin to preach about Jesus and a fresh understanding of the meaning of the death of Jesus. Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. Peter says, Acts 2.22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So Peter says, God approved of Jesus. That's what he says there in verse 22. He was attested to you by God. He did all these mighty works and signs and wonders, like some of those things Drew talked about at the table this morning. And he did all those things, and you knew it. But, verse 23... You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You did wrong. You crucified Jesus. You killed the Son of God. It was an act of evil. Drop down to verse 36. Acts 2 and verse 36. Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he says, You killed him, you crucified him, and God has made him Lord in Christ. He is alive again, he continues to live, and yet you are guilty of his death. And they know that they have done something wrong, probably because not only is Peter telling the truth, but they feel it in their heart. I know that because in verse 37, it says they were cut to the heart. They felt convicted by what they had done and what Peter had said because they knew they had done evil. And isn't it staggering to know that the first Christians come from the murderers of Jesus? The ones who first accept the gospel and are baptized for the remission of their sins, believe they have sins because one of their sins is the crucifixion of the Lord who now they serve. And I think that's awesome. From the very beginning, you see that the cross has new meaning. It was an act of evil, but evil that now can be forgiven. Turn the page with me to Acts chapter 3. In Acts 3, Peter just does not stop telling the people who were responsible that what they've done is wrong. Acts 3 and verse 13 the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. You notice how he keeps coming back to him. In fact, it se he seems to go out of his way to point the finger at them. You did this. You crucified him. You did it this way. You asked for a murderer to be released and an innocent man to be killed. You did it. You are responsible. And it was wrong. It was an act of evil. You shouldn't have done it. And now your only hope is to be forgiven what you've done. Turn to Acts 7 with me. Acts 7. <clears throat> Stephen 
who is the preacher in Acts chapter 7, makes an even stronger case because he goes back farther to all the times throughout Israel's history where they had rejected God and refused to listen to God. And in Acts chapter 7 and verse 51, he comes to this climax, Acts 7, 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you now have betrayed and murdered. You have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So he says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Every time God tries to do something, you stand in his way. And now, not only did your fathers kill the prophets, but the prophets prophesied about the Messiah, and you have killed the Messiah. And so, of course, they are cut to the heart too, but not in a good way. They are enraged and they kill Stephen because he tells them what you've done is an act of evil. So, the Gospels amazingly paint Pilate, the pagan Roman governor, as having a higher sense of a moral compass than the Jewish leadership. At least Pilate is trying to do the right thing. But instead, it is the leaders who do evil in demanding that Jesus is going to die. Everyone is aware of the drastic nature of the cross. The leaders of the Jewish nation plan for years to accomplish it. Pilate is extremely reluctant. So is his wife. So is Herod. Everybody says, this is not a good thing. Even the people are hesitant until finally they are egged on to crying out his blood be on us and on our children. Even Judas, when he sees he's betrayed innocent blood, goes and hangs himself. Everyone understands something awful is happening because Jesus did not deserve to die. This is the greatest act of injustice in the history of mankind. So when we look at the cross and we look back at it, we have to say, well, why did this happen? It happened because it was an act of evil. And that explains the cross on one level. But then you have to begin to ask the question, but, but how could evil accomplish good? Because the cross certainly is an evil act that then accomplishes something positive. And so then we have to add this, that the cross was a part of God's plan. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. You're going to see the apostles point this out repeatedly, and we'll look at a couple of places where this happens. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, it says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So on one level, people are doing evil, but on another level, God is achieving his definite plan according to his foreknowledge. What he knew beforehand has now come to pass. So not only are people allowed to do something evil to the Son of God, but God himself already knew that was going to happen and it was part of his plan. Turn the page to Acts 3 and Acts 3 and verse 18. Acts 3 and verse 18 says, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer... He thus fulfilled. God said the Messiah was going to suffer. He foretold it, and now it has come to pass. It was part of God's plan. So if we get so focused on the idea that it was an act of evil, we may miss that God had in mind the fact that there was going to be an act of evil. He planned for it, not that he caused it, but he planned for it and knew he would use that evil act as a part of his will for the world. Turn to Acts chapter 4. This is a, the place that Brother Richard read for us this morning. It's always amazing to me 
when someone picks a scripture and we haven't talked about it and they happen to pick a scripture that goes really well with what I'm going to say, it makes you think that maybe that's a providential thing. And that's certainly the case here with this one. In Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 24, it says, When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against the, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place." So they mention Psalm 2, that's the quote in verse 25 and 26, which says that when the people, the, the rulers of the world, gather together to stop God and to stop his Messiah, they're thwarted. In fact, Psalm 2 says that the Lord will laugh. Because what they try to do actually ends up serving God's purposes instead of theirs. Now specifically in verse 27, they relate that to Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. They're talking about the cross. And they're saying they were gathered to stop you. And instead they ended up doing, verse 28, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Isn't that amazing? I find it amazing that we serve a God who can take people's actions and make it into his plan. So that when people take their stand against him, he uses their evil and turns it into good. So on one level, the cross was an act of evil, but on another level, the cross was not an accident. It was something that God knew would happen and planned for so he could accomplish his will through it. So that answers the question on another level, but it also raises a deeper question, which is, why would God allow an act of evil to be a part of his plan. Why did God want this? And so we have to answer the question on another level. The cross is then a suffering that is for us, a suffering for us. Now, Jesus hints at this when he institutes the Lord's Supper, or we might call it the Last Supper. We talked about this a few weeks ago. I'll just put these quotes on the board. This is my body, he says, which is given for you, Luke twenty two nineteen. This cup is poured out for you. Is the new covenant in my blood, Luke twenty two twenty. Notice the for you. Because what Jesus is saying is, I'm about to offer a sacrifice that is for you. It is not simply an act of evil. And it's not just God wanted me to do this. It has to do with you. It has to do with disciples. It has to do with others who are going to be blessed through my death. And so as New Testament Christians saw Jesus resurrected, they began to understand on a deeper level, of course through the Holy Spirit's revelation, they began to understand on a deeper level that this was not an isolated act or just an injustice, that this was something that had to do with their spiritual state before God. And I want to talk about a couple of things that he that the New Testament writers describe Jesus' death as doing for us. So one of those is the idea of reconciliation. And if you want to take that just as a big category, reconciliation is the idea of two people who are estranged who come back together. And so when we talk about this, when we talk about man and God, you have man who has left God because of his sin, and Jesus, in order to reconcile God and man together again, takes away the sin of man, and man can be reconciled again. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9. 
You can see this in many places. It's in Romans. It's in 2 Corinthians. It's all over the New Testament. But I just want to read this one passage in Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 24. Because what you'll see is how Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice. His cross was a sacrifice to take sin away. Hebrews 9 and verse 24. It says, For Christ has entered... Hebrews 9.24, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So Jesus appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now that's a different view of the cross, isn't it? That says the cross is not just something that happened. It's not even just something that God allowed to happen. But it is something that was deliberately done to benefit other people, to take sin away, to suffer for sin once for all, so that there would be a people who were gathered together, sanctified, made holy, purified by the blood of Jesus, and therefore able to be reconciled to God, to mend the breach that sin has caused between us and God, between all man and God. And it makes sense of, well, that's not what I wanted, but it does make sense of that too. <clears throat> It makes sense of, don't read that yet, pay attention to me. It makes sense of the idea in John chapter 1 and verse 29 where John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Taking away sin, dying for sin is the idea here. Now, another direction besides just reconciliation is the idea of regeneration, giving new life where there was no life before, a death that gives life. And that's where we come on this passage, 2 Corinthians 5. Now you can look up there. It's okay now. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now that's one of those sentences from Paul that you've got to chew on for a little while. But the idea he is getting at as he articulates this is that when we look at the death of Jesus, we also see the opportunity for new life for ourselves. That we can live again because Jesus died. And the logic of that is like this. The logic is because sin is removed, we become a new person, free from sin. We become alive again. And sometimes that is described as a new birth. Like Jesus says, we must be born again. Sometimes that is called the word regeneration, as it is in Titus 3, the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we have this image that directly from the death of Jesus, we gain new life. Let's look at that one in Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. Romans 6 and verse 2 says, Romans 6 and verse 2, By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So you see how the death of Jesus now is looked at as what we can be saved through. The death of Jesus now is looked at as a hope for new life, that we are baptized into his death, and then just as he was raised, we are raised to walk in new life. So sometimes when we talk about the suffering of Jesus, we're talking about a death that brings life or regeneration. Just as sometimes we're talking about reconciliation and bringing us back to God, here we talk about giving us new life. And so we can say we are born again. We can say I'm a new creature. We can say I'm a new man in place of the old man. And over and over again, New Testament writers use that language and they're saying Jesus' cross means something for me, not just for him. The other direction, or one other direction when we talk about how the cross was suffering for us, is the idea of freedom. You see that also in Romans chapter 6. Look in verse 5 with me. Romans 6 and verse 5, he says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So the idea of freedom means I once was enslaved to sin and now through a death I have been set free. Look a little further in verse 9, Romans 6 and verse 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So as Jesus died and was raised, as Jesus now no longer lives under the dominion of death, he is free from that so... We have been set free from sin. So the idea in Romans 6 is don't let yourself be enslaved again. There is a new life that you live because of the death of Jesus. You've been set free from that. Don't be enslaved again. We could go on and on with these images, but I want to talk about one more sense in which the suffering of Jesus is a blessing for us. And that's in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians 2, the idea that I want to focus on in this text is the idea of unity that Jesus' death brings people together. Jesus' death brings people together. Ephesians 2 and verse 11, it says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Notice how much of this hinges on the death of Jesus. The Gentiles in verse 13 have been brought near by the blood of Christ, meaning his death. He has broken down the barrier between Jew and Gentile in his flesh, verse 13. He has reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, verse 16. 
All of this is about the death of Jesus. But what it is meaning is that Jesus' death becomes the sacrifice that everybody can have. You don't have to be a Jew to have it. It's okay if you're a Gentile, you can have it. You don't have to be a man or a woman. You can be whoever you are. And everyone can have access to the salvation, the reconciliation that is offered through the death of Jesus. And so Jesus' death speaks to a radical reorganization of society where there is neither Jew nor Greek or male or female or slave or free, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. We all have access to one Father through Him. We are all in one body through the cross. So God has done a new thing that brings people together in the cross. Now all of those ideas rest in a paradox. The paradox is this, that the death of Jesus is a good thing. That death brings so many blessings. A death that gives life. A death that sets free. A death that brings people together. That's a strange thing to consider. But as New Testament Christians look back on the death of Jesus, these are the things that they saw. It's not an unfortunate circumstance, something that God just let happen, an act of evil that God somehow he was asleep on the job. It's not even something that God just planned as an act of evil. It was something that God allowed and used to be a blessing to all mankind. But that answers the question on another level, but it it pushes us deeper because you still have to ask the question, what would prompt God to allow something so horrible to happen for other people. Why would God do that? And that's where we come to the real heart of the cross, which is the idea that the cross was a demonstration of God's love. Let's go to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3. The motivation, and really where the questions have to begin to stop, is that we have to say that what really prompted all of this and what really prompted God to plan it and to allow it and to execute it for other people is his great love for us. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. By this we know love. We understand love in a new way. Love is demonstrated and not just talked about when you see Jesus on the cross. Turn the page to 1 John 4 and verse 7. 1 John 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The cross is the love of God. There is a reason why people wear crosses, the symbol of such awful torture and suffering, to remind them of the love of God because in the cross we see God's love. If we miss the love of God, even if we get all the rest of this right, we missed the point. The point is God's love. John is especially heavy on the idea that we didn't do this. This is something that God initiated. Not that we love God, he says in verse 10, but that he loved us. God did it. It is an act of God's grace and God's love, not of our own merit. And particularly, I think we need to consider this as we try to think about the love of God for ourselves. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5, verses 6 to 8. 
For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul makes the distinction between, you know, you maybe might die for a good person or a righteous person. But would you die for a sinner? May I ask those who are parents, how much would you have to love someone to let your child die for them? And if you reach a point where you think, you know what, I, I think I might be able to do it, what, what would you think when that person ignored your sacrifice? Or when you knew that they were unworthy in some way? Or when you knew that maybe with the, the time that you bought them with your child's death, they wasted it? How much would you have to love that person? To let your child die for them. And wouldn't it enter your heart to say they don't deserve it? You're unworthy of this. I believe the reason that we are told about this in, in these emotional terms, about what we would do, is so that we can begin to fathom the love of God for us, not just for the world because the world's a lot bigger than us, but for me personally. God watched his son die for me. And as our brother has pointed out, he could have called 10,000 angels. He could have come down from the cross. He could have ended it all. And yet he let it happen. And God allowed it to happen. Because he loved me. There is no other reason. There is nothing deeper here. But the profound love of God. And what Paul reminds me is, I didn't deserve it. I was still a sinner. I was an enemy of God. By my own declaration, I had already decided I didn't want to listen to God. And I was going to do what I wanted. And I didn't need his love. And I didn't need his rules. That I was going to make it on my own. And that still, while I was in that state, God loved me. Loved me enough to let his son die for me. The cross stands above and beyond everything that has ever happened in the history of mankind because it declares for all time that God loves you. People may not like us. Our parents may disappoint us. Our mates may hurt us. We may feel lonely. We may feel misunderstood. But when we look at the cross, we know in absolute certain terms that we are loved. And loved in a deeper and more filling and meaningful way than any human being could ever give us. That's what the cross is about. It is that love that transformed the world and continues to transform us. It is that love that transformed these men. 
from, like John here, who we're reading about the love of God, from the Son of Thunder to the Apostle of Love. It is that love that will change our hearts and lives. And so when we look at the cross, we see a perspective that shifts from where we began. You remember those men that we began reading about? We had hoped that this was going to be the Messiah, but instead, he died. Now they're able to look back and say, not only did we have hope before, we have more hope now. Because though we see that the cross was an act of evil, we see how God was using it to bless us and to ultimately demonstrate his love for us. And they began to see the cross as a calling to a higher way of living. To say things like, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. To say, I am a new creation in him. And they began to pursue a deeper level of life. So if you're here this morning and you want that sacrifice to take away your sin, if you're here this morning and you need to make a change in your life to become a disciple of Jesus, we invite you to come to him, to have your sins washed away, to be buried with him in baptism, and to walk in new life. If you're ready, we ask that you come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.